So thanks everybody for coming. If you don't know me, my name is Carly. Um, today I wanted to have a conversation, clinical conversation, um, on a patient that I saw when I was covering a weekend one time, um, and I learned a lesson in handling home pain medications in the post-operative patient. So John Doe is our patient. He's a 47-year-old male with intractable back pain who has failed conservative treatment options. Um, as per surgery's note, I don't know exactly what conservative treatment options really meant other than non-surgical up until the time. And uh, he presented for neurosurgery after more than seven years of chronic back pain. His pertinent medical history includes back injury, numbness and tingling, um, asthma and sleep apnea. He has anxiety and depression. He has had already one cervical fusion and um, a couple of other surgeries. He weighs 320 pounds. He's 69 inches, so it's kind of small and kind of husky, for lack of a better way to say it. Um, he had normal renal and, and uh, hepatic function at the time. Um, these are his home medications, so I'm not going to go over all of them just for the sake of time, but um, really what I think is important to show you guys is that when he came in, he came in on um, naproxen for pain, and he also came in on Oxycontin, the equivalent of 240 milligrams three times a day. So his preoperative diagnosis was degenerative lumbar disease. Um, he had lumbar spondylosis and facet arthropathy. His surgery list was actually quite extensive, but to keep it simple, really what it was was a lumbar fusion and a laminectomy with instrumentation. So, welcome to Saturday morning. Um, his surgery was Friday, and I walked in at 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and um, Mary Kay immediately asked me if I would be willing to go upstairs and do a pain consult. They had already received two separate phone calls from two separate RNs prior to, um, prior to me even getting there regarding um, somebody being able to go up and see this guy because he was just in that much pain. Um, clinical notes. I should have logged into Sorian. Shoot. Um, the clinical notes. Does everybody know where to find those on Sorian? Yes. Okay. Um, the pertinent clinical notes was that at 6:02, it was uh, one of the nurses noted that he had um, had had pain issues throughout the night, and then two hours later, the patient continues to be in severe pain. Postoperatively, the only pain orders that this patient really had was um, he was ordered for diazepam 5 milligrams every 8 hours as needed for muscle spasms. They gave him dexamethasone 4 milligrams every 6 hours, but only for 4 doses. And then they had put him on a fentanyl PCA. The orders for this PCA was, um, at the time that it was started, he got a 40 microgram bolus. He had no continuous infusion rate, 
and he had a demand dose of only one ml every six minutes with a one hour max of 10 mls. The, uh, according to the pharmacist that was covering the floor on the Friday that the patient had surgery, uh, neurosurgery purposely chose not to resume this patient's Oxycontin 240, um, even though there was a phone call just verifying that they really did not want to resume this postoperatively. So when I finally get upstairs to see him, um, he complains to me that his pain is a 12 out of 10 on the pain scale. Before surgery, he lived at like a constant level that he rated between six and seven. Um, when I went upstairs and I was talking to him, I could see clearly that he was extremely uncomfortable. He wasn't really able to move, but he's vocalized that he really wanted to move because he felt so uncomfortable, but he knew if he did, it was going to be a bad idea. Um, he was uh, a little bit tearful, which struck, he didn't really strike me as the kind of person that would ordinarily cry from a lot of pain. He had obviously had chronic pain and was somewhat tolerant to just living with it. Um, and he was not able to sit up in bed. He just had to lay flat on his back no matter what. His goal at the time that I first saw him was anything but where he was. So he was willing to live with 10 out of 10 pain because it wasn't a 12. Felt like that was probably a reasonable goal. Other patient complaints um, at that time was that he felt no relief at all from the regimen that he was currently on. Uh, immediately prior to the interview, and when I say immediately, I mean kind of like throughout the night and leading up to the time that I saw him, he had been given three separate boluses of 25 mics of fentanyl IV. Um, he got one at two, he got one at like six, and then one right before the interview. Uh, and he felt absolutely nothing from any of that. And he also expressed that had he known that this is what it was going to be like postoperatively, that he would have never done anything. He would have just elected to stay at his, at his level with no surgical intervention. Um, and he didn't feel like he was well informed that it was going to be so tough. Postoperatively, it seemed he said it, it seemed like this was going to be the magical cure. Is I think the words that he used to describe it. So, just quickly, I guess to try and walk everybody through these conversions, did you guys all get a um, handout and stuff? So, based upon what this patient <coughs> was getting preoperatively, it was 720 milligrams of oxycontin. Um, to convert that to IV fentanyl and the equi chart should be at the beginning of your packet. Um, if 20 milligrams is the equivalent of 100 mics of IV fentanyl, then just to cross-multiply, 720 mics of OxyContin is equal to about 300 and, uh, 30, 3,600 micrograms of IV fentanyl. Um, and this would really be just his daily requirements, not anything that would be used to, con to control his acute pain postoperatively. 
So everybody follow the math. Was he on any breakthrough dosing before surgery? No. Okay. Okay. Um, sorry, it's kind of hard to see the font. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, so. Did Jen help you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I picked it out all by myself. <laughs> um, so the recommendation um, that I've learned just based upon experience and reading a couple of or what little references is out there for opioid conversions is that you decrease by 25 to 50% when um, switching from one opioid to another for incomplete cross-tolerance or sort of this idea for, for those of you that might not really know what that is, is that you might have increased toxicity when immediately sort of switching over to a different opioid than what the person is usually used to. So it's just a suggestion. I mean, there's times in which you would suggest a lesser reduction. There's times in which you would suggest more reduction or no reduction at all. Um, when you might consider doing a lesser reduction is if you had somebody that was in severe or uncontrolled pain. You might consider more reduction if you have somebody with sleep apnea or COPD or something that would have cause them to have a decreased respiratory drive, um, or you might consider no reduction if they were sort of like, sort of like this guy, so, <laughs> sort of, um, you know, a chronic opioid user with new pain. Um, so anyways, I guess my point of this is, is that when I did my calculations for this guy, what I was working with was a range in which I wanted to shoot to target for his opioid requirements, if you will. So if you considered a 25% reduction from the 3,600 micrograms of fentanyl that we already calculated out, it would end up that you want, you would want this guy to be somewhere between 2,700 mics and 3,600 mics of fentanyl in a day. Um, and just in case anybody really wanted to look, the um, McPherson's Demystifying Opioid Conversion Calculations book that we have, one in the resident office and one in the main pharmacy, is where I got most of this information and was probably my Bible when I was with Lynn. <laughs> and you saw her speak, right? At the and I saw her speak at mid-year, too. It was a pretty awesome discussion, and she writes her book exactly the same way as she talks for anybody that's ever heard her. <laughs> um, so as I've already said, this 2,700 to 3,600 mics is just what we would need for him to be at his baseline usual dose. Um, and it would, wouldn't really be anything, it, it would do nothing to control his acute post-operative pain. So um, if the patient maximized the fentanyl that was currently ordered. Do you guys remember how it was ordered? Um, he had like one ml every six minutes, a max of 10 mls, no bolus, or no basal rate. Um, so even if he maxed it out, he would only be getting 2,400 mics of fentanyl per day. So... Which means he would never sleep. Which means he would never sleep. Um... And it's, that's only contingent upon the fact that the patient is continuously pushing the button, as Lynn said. Um, so 
courtesy of Lynn, I was able to um, track down the PCA administration records. So I, I still have a little bit of trouble making sure that I really understand how to read these. But this assessment, does anybody mind if I stand and get up? Okay. Um, so this assessment is that they have to um, note what they're doing every four hours per hospital policy. So the first time, let's just say they hung the bag at 4 p.m. because the first time they notate it is at 8 p.m. So this patient actually received, in between that time frame, eight attempts on his button. Or no, he received eight injections. He attempted it 10 times. And really, in four hours, he could have gotten up to 40 attempts, right? Does everybody follow how we figured that out? So, I mean, for the first eight hours immediately post-operatively, he is getting just next to nothing compared to what he's used to. But also next to nothing compared to what he could be getting. So, um, I just want to make a point about this. You will hear providers and nurses even saying they're hitting the button all the time. Because 8, 10, even 20 looks like a big number. You do have to look at the time frame and how much they could have hit the button versus something they did. And when you point that out, it just indicates someone else. So I guess at that point in time, um, it was my personal assessment that there was three options for what we could really do with this patient. One, we could make a basal rate on the PCA of what he was used to and then use demand dosing to control his acute pain. We could um, alternatively use the Oxycontin that he was on at home and use the PCA for his to control his acute pain with demand dosing. Or we could just say, forget about the PCA altogether and let's just use PO, um, put him back on his Oxycontin, we'll use PO, short-acting agents, and then maybe an IV rescue to control whatever his acute pain needs are. So looking quickly at option one, we can make a basal rate out of the PCA to account for the daily requirements and then use demand to control post-op pain. Um, if the goal is to be between 27 and 3,600 mics, our standard concentration for fentanyl PCAs is 10 mics per mil. This, this guy is going to require a basal rate somewhere between 11 and a half mils an hour and 15 mils an hour. Does everybody, everybody see how that came about? He had no basal in the beginning. He had no basal in the beginning, that's correct. Um, and also consider that without the IV rooms compounding something special for him, he would have to be either a 50 mil bag total or a 100 mil bag total. So or just, 250. or 250. Is an option. We, we don't want to change the concentration. We don't want the IV that least, yes. Um, so a good portion of the bag would be kind of just a basal rate for this guy, um, just to consider you know your resources and what you have available. Um, so then to try to account for how you would want to do demand dosing, I 
I'm not very skilled at determining how how the best way is to determine a regimen for this. Um, I've seen a bunch of references. Most of them say that you would use 50 to 150 percent. I, I don't like to more than double a dose, um, so I went with you would use 50 to 100 percent of the hourly basal rate, and you would divide that in a 15 or 30 minute interval, so that way um, this patient would get kind of a big bolus as opposed to the one ml every six minutes, and we're just gonna like snail crawl our way through this this pain. Um, so. If you went by that, really, to do the calculations, you would end up with 6 to 7.5 mLs every 15 minutes for a total combined one-hour lockout between the basal rate and the demand dosing of 35.5 to 45 mLs. Does everybody follow this? Okay, so that's, that's the first option. The second option would be just to put him on the Oxycontin that he was used to, 240-TID, and then use the same principles as we had, you know, with the calculating the demand dosing the first time. So he would stick with the 6 to 7.5 mils every 15 minutes. So now your one-hour lockout will change to 24 to 30. I mean, it would be a little bit less of a nursing requirement because they won't have to change the bag so often and... Pharmacy won't be constantly compounding PCAs for this guy because he's using a lot. Um, and then, so, and you don't have to have the basal rate, obviously. Then you just have your basal as the OxyContin. Um, the third option, which is what I chose to do at the time, was to resume his OxyContin, discontinue the PCA because he wasn't feeling any of it at all, but maybe that was just because we underdosed him so badly but he, I was getting the vibe from the patient that it was just like, this PCA is pointless for me. I don't like this. I want everything to go back the way it was. This is more frustration than it's worth. So it's really kind of like my determining factor. Like, if he doesn't like it, he's not going to maximize it. Let's just forget it, and we'll try this way. So um, at the time, I came up with OxyContin 240, um, three times a day, and then I did 15 to 30, and then a 10 milligram morphine um, breakthrough every four hours, and that was to be given one hour after the oral medication if the pain was unrelieved. Um, I'm not, I don't really recall what I was thinking, honestly, because I did something really wrong. <laughs> um, does any, anybody know what it is that I did wrong? the breakthrough dose is low. Yeah, the breakthrough dose is like really low. It's recommended that you use um, 10 to 20 percent of your daily dose as a breakthrough dose and um, I don't, that's like 5 percent. I don't even know. It was <laughs> it was really bad. It was better than what he had though. It was better than what he had though. Um, at the time I think I was just nervous because it was such big numbers and I was not all that experienced not that I'm really experienced now but anyway I underdosed him so um, I reassessed him on Saturday so I went to see him Saturday morning I reassessed him Saturday afternoon and I reassessed him Sunday morning on Sunday morning I called the clinical on call and said um help <laughs> please help 
Um, so what we decided to do was to go back to the 10 to 20% rule. Um, 10 to 20% of his usual daily dose would be 72 to 140, roughly, of uh, breakthrough oxycodone every four hours. Um, so I ended up starting at 70, and then um, I left the IV rescue on board uh, if he needed it. Ultimately, this patient was seen two more times after Sunday. He was seen again Monday and then Tuesday before he was discharged home. Each time there was subsequent changes to the regimen, but um, for the sake of time, I just kind of focused on the interventions that I made over the weekend and how we took this patient from yeah placebo to you know a much more comfortable place so really what I took away from this case and I hope to be able to impart to everybody else is that continuation of pain medications um, or at least a therapeutic alternative is of critical importance in surgical patients. Um, I really appreciate that the pharmacist that got the order, you know, took the time to make the phone call, um, but it just didn't work out for this guy, unfortunately. So we have to be really diligent about making sure that, you know, we offer these patients some pain. This guy probably was in withdrawal because he was not getting at least 25% of his usual dose um, for two days in the, in the point when he would have needed more pain meds than usual because he was immediately post-op. Um, he didn't have any physical signs of withdrawal that I could tell. I mean, well, maybe he did, and it was just looked like pain to me, but um, super important. Um, the other thing is that big numbers when you're talking about opioids have to be put into context. I think I sort of forgot that, and I got a little bit um, skittish about having, you know, recommending such big things, but really when you think about it, it's all kind of like a, a calculated and well-thought-out plan. It's not just something that you randomly chose somebody that's opiate-naive to be on these big, big numbers. You know, you have to put them in context for what the patient is used to and not get skittish. <laughs> And then um, the other thing about it is is that, like I was trying to say to you guys when I was coming up with the range in which I wanted to get this guy to, it's not an exact science, um, pain management in general, and that you have to kind of try things and, and let it work or not work and then make adjustments thereof, but it's all premeditated and well thought out and calculated. Um, as best as possible for each patient on an individual basis. Um, and that part of what I really learned this weekend was that because I went back to see him in the afternoon and then the following morning is that what I did didn't work, so I needed to try something else. And if I didn't go back and see him and I just left it at that, maybe he would have you know, sat crying in his room for another three days from when I first saw him. So follow-up can really bridge the gap of this trial and error. And um, I think that's really all that I have for you guys. Does anybody have any questions or comments? <laughs> comments. Um, I, I mean, I 
I can um, see how you would be nervous about such big numbers and uh, and exactly what you're saying, putting into context, I think is really important. I, I feel I nearly killed somebody once doing um, some uh, something where they were on a crazy dose of, of OxyContin and I verified it six ways to Sunday with the pharmacy and the bottles and everything and, um, and had uh, the hospitals prescribe it and the guy slept for a day. Um, uh, and delayed his discharge for a day. Now, the context was different in that he was not crying uh, uh, in severe acute pain and, and in withdrawal. So what he was really doing, I don't know. Now I think he was selling the OxyContin because he clearly was not um, tolerant, uh, tolerant to it. But uh, I don't know. So the context, I would, I would include both things. I mean, yeah. um, if you don't have this, that scenario where uh, where your patient's clearly in, in pain, then uh, then right, yeah, right. Uh, then that that big those big numbers might not be what they need at the time. Do we wait until uh, listen to that story and then understanding this guy's one? Do we let's say you see that huge dose? Do we wait until that patient is in pain, or do we just trust that hopefully they're taking that dose at home the way they're supposed to, and we put them on that? Basil dose. Now, I mean, how are you supposed to know the guy was yeah. taking it or not taking it? Yeah, I mean, afterwards, I, I talked with a provider, and we were kind of like, yeah, how could we know? We, we verified this in every way that we could think of. Uh, we could possibly verify it, including having the daughter at home find the bottles and read the labels and call the pharmacy and all that. Yeah. Um, I mean, hit him, clearly, he, he, he needed it. My, my patient not clearly needing it. Uh, I guess you could go with the, it's easier to give more, it's harder to take it away uh, principle. And the only other possibility is maybe doing it during drug screen, but how would you even know to ask for that? Right, when right. you verified it so many times yeah. and they refill it. I mean, I, I have yeah. access to iStop. That's one more tool we can use. But again, you can fill a prescription every month and sell it. Right. 20 bucks a pill, you know? Another thing about this guy sitting here crying for three days, not only would it be crying, but now we're setting his nervous system up for chronic pain. Not that this person who has maybe more than one back surgery is already has chronic pain, but 30% of gallbladders want to have chronic pain because poorly treated acute pain. Does the McPherson reference just say 20 milligrams of oxycodone to 100 mics of fentanyl? Because it's on our reference, it's the only one with a range 20. Yeah, that's changing, Joe. Yeah. That's, it's being updated like just now. I set it up to be put out. So it's just 20 milligrams. Just 20, but just yeah. to let all you guys know, FDA has convened a panel of experts for the country to have one equino music table because every time a new opiate comes out, there's a table in that package insert and it's different than the fentanyl one, it's different than Exalgo. And so there's going to be one and five. And it, and it will say 20 bucks. My only other addendum is what I've gotten is, is you know when they come in on chronic high dose opioid um, even when I'm doing the conversions I usually have someone try to like just do the calculations separately because you know you're or even when I'm doing any conversions just to make sure kind of like what you said Joe you know you double check until you're blue in the face um, and I because Carly those numbers do I mean they start to freak you out when I see them. I was like Well versed as those cross tolerances, and so I find 
better backup within my peers than I do like running it by they're like well if you've done the math I mean, I'll take whatever you say which also makes me hurt <laughs> so I'm like okay I'm glad you have a lot of faith but I want someone to do a little validation of what that is I mean if you're all working on the same tool but it's still easy to do a simple math not that that's what happened, but I mean, that's the other part of those well, big numbers that it's that mental hurdle of getting over it. Yeah, I mean, I didn't actually check. I ended up checking my numbers with Scott, but not until Sunday when I went back and was like, well, that, that didn't work out. Um, but like you said, before I even got there, the neurosurgery PA was there, and he was just like, whatever you guys want to recommend is what we're going to do. So, um, What's that answer on Friday when we call him to, to continue the hormones? Different neurosurgery PA. <laughs> um, but, you know, looking backwards, I kind of wish I had just anybody to... I didn't ask anybody, so it was nobody's fault other than my own, but I should have asked somebody to double-check it before I even, you know, put up the orders for for the PA to review. Um, because it was an order for, as soon as I wrote it, you know, it was could have potentially legendary but thankfully did not so that's a good point but you can see how successful you were because it's probably discharged a day or two after his doses were adjusted um he oh, yes he was two days it took but yeah, uh, the other thing that I've done because I've run into similar scenarios before is even if my goal is to get that patient control not oral meds is I do give a dose of IV if they're in such acute pain uh, at that moment. Yeah. And then go with the IV to rescue, For rescue. The, the, I, uh, the oral meds, but I give the IV to rescue the PCA without a basal uh, situation <laughs> or, or whatever situation they're in. Yeah, I think that, um, I think that the nurse, the nurse I was working with that day was like super on top of it and you know so I think that they they had it done like before I had even written for it but I I didn't make that as a formal recommendation I think that the nurse was just there to like pick up my slack right. <laughs> you can tell in the MAR when those doses you know he gave himself eight injections but there were ten mLs given eight injections of one mL is eight mLs he probably got two one mL clinician bolus to the PCA yeah. there probably orders and then so can you go back to the sure <laughs> so you see eight mLs, but there were twelve mLs given, so there were probably a couple of clinician boluses, and those are documented by paper at the bottom of that MAR. If if the nurses are doing it. So, question for the person that's not directly touching some of the stuff: This PCA record is only in the physical chart; it can't be accessed. Yes. We are meeting Monday to to get this in Soria. We've been trying for years. Because there's assessments and documentation of that all in one, and those are two different systems, MAC and SORI. Yeah. yeah. This one is actually pretty well filled in for, you know, some of the other ones that I've seen. Um, it's not bad. So what tipped off the pharmacist? It was somebody entering the orders, is that right? Was the Lynn's note in there? Oh, yeah. Up? So this very patient is the reason why the pre-admission testing department refers all of these patients to us. This happens so frequently, and it happened probably 15 years ago, and that's when we started doing that. So um, once neurosurgery group, though, never takes my recommendation, so I stopped doing it for that voluminous group. Yeah. 
Um, but what I do is look at their, if there's an opportunity to say, for the pharmacist, patient on fentanyl patch, be sure it's ordered post-op or Oxycontin. And I'm sure that's why Sue called because I, I popped it up and she gave it to me. I mean, should this have been escalated, you know, past the neurosurge PA that didn't want to restart? It just sounds like there was a period of time where somebody else should have been told about it. I don't know. I wouldn't have been comfortable with it all. Yeah. I think I, looking at that PCA order, then I would have said, okay, then we need to change maybe the PCA order. Right. They might have been more amenable to that. So if you're calling, yeah. feel confident. Just I'm hoping these cases build your confidence like it did with me and with the residents and anyone doing helping with these patients. Call the clinical on call if you're not, because the patient will suffer. It's not like threatening withdrawal, but it sets you up for chronic pain and the long way to stay, long way to break. But how many do you know? You don't even know the hormones. You don't even know what patients have been. Not It's hard, but I mean, when I was with you, we probably saw at least two of these at least of these neurosurge patients who were on, you know, high, high doses of Dilaudid or Oxycontin at home, and they just did such a bad job, and the patients were miserable, and they were, they were promised no pain after surgery, which was the most appalling part, and it sounds like he got the same story, so anything we can do. And the other guy will tell you, never want PCA again. Probably not. He'll adjust it and make it better. He'll say, no, PCA doesn't work. The other thing about this particular case, and I feel like it may extrapolate to other cases, and maybe it's just me, but I feel like neurosurgery is one of the hardest specialties to get a hold of. So the private group, the St. Peter's group, no, it's right. always the surgery pain house. So being on top of pain management is much easier to deal with it on Friday night than it is on Saturday when the guy's in 12 out of 10 pain instead of, you know, whatever, you know, comfort level he had um, immediately post-op when the anesthesia was still on board and and whatnot. So, I mean, I, I ended up having to leave a note in Sorian because I couldn't get a hold of these guys on Christmas Eve. It's the weirdest thing. They want your help, and then it's like they... They, they disappear for the most part. So um, there were several pages that were made that didn't get returned. But either way, I guess my point is it's easier to be ahead of the pain and on top of it than it is to have to backtrack because it's just all the more harder when you can't get a hold of anybody. You just said something, too, that made me think of uh, a source of information I've used in the past is the anesthesia record. So sometimes I'm really worried about these big numbers. Um, and I look at the anesthesia record, which is in the back of the chart. It's under, like, anesthesia reports or something, and you can read it to figure out how much fentanyl did they get um, to start the surgery and throughout the surgery and whatnot. And, you know, sometimes you're comforted because, okay, they needed 700 mics of fentanyl just for this uh, <laughs> uh, procedure, and so I understand this patient is tolerant and, and can handle a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, and, you know, it, it doesn't always provide the clarity, but sometimes it, it, sometimes it does. Sometimes yeah. I got a question. Sure. Um, so this person was on PRN at home, right? He was not. So hypothetically, if 
they continued the Oxycontin, would we be looking for PRN doses like you eventually recommended? Should we be calling on that since his, his opioid dose is so high? Or yes. if they generically prescribe like Norco 5, should we be like, uh, <laughs> That's not enough. Great if you could, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't, there was no way in which this guy was going to get any real pain relief. Um, the, this one mil for six minutes is somebody is a regimen that's for somebody that's opiate naive. You know, like it's just maybe like a twenty, like a fifth of what he's used to. So um, he was not going to get any pain relief out of this, and I don't think he would have really gotten any pain relief if we didn't like bump up the doses, even though I did it wrong to begin with, if that makes any sense. So yes, ultimately, I, it would be great if you guys could call, but I understand staffing is... Yeah, well, just sometimes I wonder, like, if like if Lynn said like, they're not even covering the acute pain, which is from the surgery, and they're already on the chronic pain, how do you adjust for acute pain? Like, how do you first, you know, figure out what your dose would be. Would you use the, the 15 to 20% rule of what they were taking at home? Is that how you figured that the out? right through dosing? Like, just initially. That's exactly like, what she did, yeah. Okay. And this patient could have taken PO immediately closed up. Then there's colorectal maybe. They have to be on PO. They would have to go with your PCA order. Mm-hmm. I mean, they should go with your PCA <laughs> order. And eventually they would have. But, uh... I think, too... To answer your, your question, I'm, I would think if, you, if it's a surgical patient, they had surgery, they have a new reason to have pain. Mm-hmm. And so that would make me want to add a breakthrough dose to someone who was just on. Yeah, well, I just wanted like a, I'm almost thinking of like a starting point in my position where, especially when we're downstairs, there it's nighttime sometimes and, you know, the access to information is limited. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not always in story and, you know, whatever the case yeah, I w- it's a general rule. The breakthrough yeah, dose I, should be ten to fifteen. Some say ten to twenty percent of the daily dose. Period. No matter who you are, no, it's because it's a relationship, and there's no studies to back this up. There really isn't. But this has been taught for decades and decades, and it's published in textbooks, and in McPherson's book, and in Cicero's book. And so. Um, 10 to 20% is simple, and it's been working for years when I use that. It's almost harder, in a way, if they're opiate naive prior to surgery, because you have no 10 to 20% to, to work off of, yeah. really. You just kind of have to start somewhere. And, and, you start and, with the suggested initiation. Yeah, so, I mean, it's almost easier as a... If I was staffing and I, you know, was trying to think about a regimen that I could recommend without... <coughs> You know, going in depth into a pain consult, I would just take, you know, hopefully 10 to 20% of their breakthrough pain. You know, 10 to 20% of this, even though it was gonna, it looks like a lot because it's 70 milligrams, because, yeah. I mean, he was on such a big dose. But. <clears throat> it's hard to make a tolerant person sedated. It's really hard to stop breathing. Pain is a great stimulus, and tolerance is too. Anything also, if you're coming in for surgery, everyone goes through pre-admission testing. <clears throat> so, you know, if you see, 
I've seen this down in the pharmacy. I'll see a post-op pain sheet that's like all marked up and it's all kind of messed up. And I'm thinking something wasn't right in this person's head when they were doing this. So I'll go into Sorian and the nurses at PAT will, will say exactly how much they take a day of their opioids. They'll say it takes two tablets. So they are usually right. <laughs> so that's like a good source of information that I've used and it's, you know, prevented me from having to go interview anybody. So it's, it's always there. Um, and then that would be a good basis to make you feel more comfortable. I know it's made me more comfortable when things are a little odd. Because it's hard from downstairs to really get the full picture. You also don't see the patient and see what their current state is. So that's like another piece that's missing. But Continuous pulse ox can be uh, ordered on any floor, right? Or no? Like the floor. They have to do Not right now. They will be when they move to the Okay. I just think of that sometimes if I'm trying to bridge the gap, if I'm uncomfortable, but I think the patient needs a lot of opioids. I, um, I'm frequently making that recommendation, but it, I guess it just can be done more. Or up to like six radio three normal. I mean, it's a in, it's a non-invasive, inexpensive intervention that can maybe give you that extra level of um, okay. I feel a little bit more comfortable now. Um, and also, I guess the floor that the patient's on really really matters too, because how closely are the nurses monitoring the the patients? I always take that into consideration. But, when I'm, when I'm worried about over-sedation, I guess. So along the lines of uh, Lucas's question, too, this, this sort of was kind of easy because it wasn't on any, any breakthrough dosing at home, so you just took the, the beta dose and you did your calculation and bang, you got a, a recommendation. But what if what if he, he was on 60 or 90 and he was able to say, yeah, I do that two or three times a day? Uh, how would that have changed what you would have done for his surgical acute pain? So, like, if he was on oxycodone 60Q4 at home? And he says, I take instance. on average two of those, two doses a day, or, or one, or whatever, it's hypothetical. Yeah. So, then, I, then how would you have calculated? I probably would have upped that by, I don't know, 50% or so, to... The breakthrough pain Yes. And we would have, typically what we do for all the surgery patients is we add that to their oxycodone. We up it by what they took at home. And then we get them higher breakthrough pain doses. Which has made that part of his base from home. Yeah. Because normally that comes up. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of odd that they're on 700 uh, milligrams of oxycontin without any kind of breakthrough, you know, as it is. So it's kind Mm -hmm. of like uh, what what Lucas was saying. You know, it's going to come up more more uh, commonly that they're on, you know, various dosing throughout the day as well. So just that's a that's a yeah. point too. And I always look to see did we miss something? I look at myself to see if we missed. Did we miss anything? No, but I when I see someone on only oxycon or only Jesus, yeah, it, it makes me look at eye stop and see if they did some refills and just didn't report it. And it's usually it's accurate. Just <laughs> other thoughts? I had a question. Is the, the post op total opioid package the same as pre-op? Like, is it always the same, or does it depend on the type of surgery? So what they go home? Yeah, like, immediately after surgery, um, do you just keep the same regimen as they were on before surgery, or does it depend sometimes on the type of surgery? So, 
I don't really have a good grasp of that. I know that some surgeries are thought to be more painful than others. Um, but it, for me, it never really changed what I did. I always did the same recommendations. You know, tried to, like, take what they were making, what they were doing at home and make it a long-acting, maybe a long-acting taper, and then do 10 to 20% for breakthrough. If that medication ends up start working in the hospital, that's what they should be sent home on. But what happens often is when the scripts are written, they're written, they're cut down. It's important to tell the patient to taper these if you've been on them for more than a week to avoid withdrawal. But at the same time, you don't underdose them three days post-op when they're expected pain trajectory is going to be two weeks. And it's so common. It's going to come right back to our doors because of that. They'll change change the yeah. time to keep sick since it's been cured. Yeah. At the same time, you see, you know how we prescribe, some providers will prescribe Norco for moderate pain and Percocet for severe pain. They'll actually write two scripts for the medical home. Mm-hmm. That's what this whole, you know, how they made us change, how we record the pain mass is creating this ridiculous prescription writing sometimes where people just don't think. And so it's a lot of opportunities to is there a reference that you use for expected pain trajectory after a surgery? Yeah, the VA um, de- Department of Defense actually has a, if you put in Google VA DOD post-op pain, they have either a pocket card, they have a summary, or they have the full document. It goes over all types of surgeries, what kind of meds have been proven to work for them, and how long, how severe. I mean, it's very general. You'll see can expect mild to severe pain in some of them, so it's not that helpful, but sometimes it is helpful. And it, it's old, but I think it's still relevant. I think I refer to it my pain resource. Resource and share. Well, thanks for coming. Great job. Thank you. Thank you.